Chapter Four, Part Two of the History of Standard Oil, Volume One by Ida Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Four: An Unholy Alliance. A strong feature of the genius of John D. Rockefeller has always been his recognition of the critical moment for action in complicated situations. He saw it now, and his representatives again came to the creek seeking an alliance. Their arguments as they found their way from the private meetings into the press in the street ran something like this. Our combination is the only big buyer. We are in the thing to stay, and shall remain the only big buyer. You might erect refineries and oppose us, but it would take months, and while you are waiting, how are you going to hold the producers? You cannot do it. We can easily get all the oil we want today at our own price from the men who sell from necessity, and yet your agency is in the first flush of enthusiasm. Sell only to us, and we will buy 15,000 barrels a day from you. Refuse an alliance with us, and you will fail. Overwhelmed by the length and severity of the struggle before them if they insisted on independence, fearful lest the scattered and restless producers could not be held much longer, Convinced by their confident arguments that the refiners could keep their promise, the Council finally agreed to a plan of union which the Derrick dubbed the Treaty of Titusville. A terrible hubbub followed the announcement that a treaty was proposed and would probably be adopted by the association. The same old arguments which had greeted each overture from the refiners were gone over again. It would be a monopoly. The price they offered for crude depended upon their getting an unnaturally high price for refined. The markets of the world would refuse to pay this price when it was discovered that it was kept up by an agreement which was contrary to the laws of supply and demand. And, besides, the parties could not trust each other. Timio Dona, Osedona, Ferentes, liberal translation, mind your eye when the Cleveland refiners get generous cautioned the dairy. As always, the ghost of the South Improvement Company was between them. On the other hand, it was argued that it was Hobson's choice. Combine or bust, there is no other market. We cannot wait for one. We have a million barrels of oil on hand. The refiners will take 15,000 barrels a day for spot cash. And after all, concluded the philosophical, if you can't do as well as you want to, do the best you can. On December 12 the proposed treaty was laid before the producers at Oil City. It aroused a debate so acrimonious that even the Derricks suppressed it. Captain Hansen led the opposition. In his judgment there was but one course for the producers, to keep themselves free from all entanglements and give themselves time to build up solidly the structure they had planned. If they had followed his advice, the whole history of the oil regions would have been different. But they did not follow it. The treaty was ratified by a vote of twenty-seven to seven. The excitement and the personalities the association indulged in at their meeting augured ill for its future, but when a week later a committee to see the refiners came back from New York with a contract signed by Mr. Rockefeller, the president, and bearing with them an order for two hundred thousand barrels of oil at three dollars and twenty-five cents, there was a general feeling that, after all, an alliance might not be so bad a thing. 
200,000 barrels was a big order and would do much to relieve their distress. Their formal sense was quieted, too, by the assurance that the producers before signing the contract had insisted that the refiners' combination enter into an agreement to take no rebates as long as the alliance lasted. The main points of the agreement decided upon were that the Refiners' Association should admit all existing refiners to its society, and the Producers' Association, all producers present and to come, that the former company should buy only from the latter, the latter sell only to the former, and that the agency should bind all producers enjoying its privileges to handle their oil through it. The refiners were to buy such daily quantities as the markets of the world would take, and at a price governed by the price of refined, five dollars per barrel when refined was selling at twenty-six cents a gallon. Either association could discontinue the agreement on ten days' notice. The producers, before signing the contract, insisted that the refiners' combination sign an agreement to take no rebates as long as the alliance lasted. This agreement in regard to rebates read as follows. Whereas it is deemed desirable to execute a contract of even date herewith between the Petroleum Producers Association and the Petroleum Refiners Association, for the purpose of securing a cooperation for mutual protection, it is agreed by the Refiners Association that Sections 1 and 3 of a contract made the 25th of March 1872, between certain trunk lines of railroads and a committee of producers and refiners, shall be and remain in full force. Petroleum Refiners Association. John D. Rockefeller. President. The sections of the contract of the 25th of March referred to agreed that no rebates or contracts or other arrangements should be made which would give any party the slightest difference in rates and that the rates should not be changed either for increase or decrease without first giving Mr. Hassan, the president of the Producers' Union, at least ninety days' notice in writing. As we now know, Mr. Rockefeller himself was receiving rebates when he signed this agreement. And now, at last, after five months of incessant work, the agency was ready to begin disposing of oil. They set to work diligently at once to apportion the 200,000 barrels the refiners had bought among the different districts. It was a slow and irritating task, for a method of appointment and of gathering had to be devised, and, as was to be expected, it aroused more or less dissatisfaction and many charges of favoritism. The agency had the work well under way, however, and had shipped about 50,000 barrels when, on January 14, it was suddenly announced that the refiners had refused to take any more of the contract oil. There was a hurried call of the producers' council and a demand for an explanation. A plausible one was ready for Mr. Rockefeller. You have not kept your part of the contract. You have not limited the supply of oil. There is more being pumped today than ever before in the history of the region. We can buy all we want at $2.50, and oil has sold within the week at two dollars. If you will not or cannot stop overproduction, can you expect us to pay your price? We keep down the output of refined, and so keep up the price. If you will not do the same, you must not expect high prices. What could the producers reply? In spite of their heroic measures, they had not been able to curtail their output. It seemed as if nature, outraged that her generosity should be so manipulated, as to benefit only the few, 
had opened her veins to flood the earth with oil, so that all men might know that here was a light cheap enough for the poorest of them. Her lavish outpouring now swept away all of the artificial restraints the producers and refiners had been trying to build. The Producers' Association seemed suddenly to comprehend their folly in supposing that when five thousand barrels more of oil was produced each day than the market demanded, any combination could long keep the contract the refiners had made with them. And their unhappy session, made more unhappy by the reading of bitter and accusing letters from all over the discontented region, ended in a complete stampede from the refiners, the vote for dissolving the alliance having but one dissenting vote. There were few tears shed in the oil regions over the rupture of the contract. The greater part of the oilmen had called it from the beginning an unholy alliance, and rejoiced that it was a fiasco. If the alliance had been all that came to an end, the case would not have been so serious, but it was not. The breaking of the alliance proved the death of the agency and the association. The leaders who had disapproved of the treaty withdrew from active work. The supporters of the alliance, demoralized by its failure, were glad to keep quiet. A few spasmodic efforts to stop the drill to inaugurate another shutdown were made, but failed. Most of the producers felt that, as oil was so low, their only safety was in getting as large a production as they could, and a perfect fever of development followed. The Producers' Association, after ten months of as exciting and strenuous effort as an organization has ever put in, was snuffed out almost in a day. It was to be five years before the oil men recovered sufficiently from the shock of this collapse to make another united effort. If Mr. Rockefeller felt in the fall of 1872 that the good of the oil business required the dissolution of the producer's agency, he could not have acted with more acumen than he did in leading them into an alliance and at the psychological moment throwing up his contract. Humiliated as the producers were by their failure, they soon found consolidation in the knowledge that the Refiners' Association was in trouble. A serious thing, in fact, had happened. When the official report of the year's exports and imports came out, it was shown that the exports of refined oil had fallen off for the first time in the history of the business. In 1871, 132,178,843 gallons had been exported. In 1872, only 118,259,832 were exported. Just as alarming was the proof that the shale and coal oil refineries of Europe had taken a fresh start, that they were selling their products more cheaply than kerosene could be imported and sold. There was a general outcry from all over the country that Mr. Rockefeller and his associates were running the oil business by keeping up the price of refined oil beyond what the price of crude justified. The producers, eager for a scapegoat, argued that the low price of crude was due to decreased consumption as well as overproduction, and their ill-will against Mr. Rockefeller flared up anew. In the meantime, the Refiners' Association was having troubles of its own. The members were not limiting their output as they had agreed. That is, it was discovered every now and then that a refinery was making more oil than Mr. Rockefeller had directed. Again, what was more fatal to the success of the association, members sometimes sold at a lower price than that set by Mr. Rockefeller. 
these restrictions were fundamental to the success of the combination and the members were called together at saratoga in june 1873 and after a long session the association was dissolved there was loud exultation in the unthinking part of the oil regions over the dissolution of the refiners the junior anaconda was dead the wiser part of the region did not exult they knew that though the combination might dissolve the standard oil company of cleveland still controlled its one-fifth of the capacity of the country that not only had mr rockefeller been able to hold the twenty refineries he had bolted so summarily at the opening of eighteen seventy two but he had assimilated them so thoroughly that he was making enormous profits mr rockefeller's contracts with the central railroad alone in eighteen seventy three and eighteen seventy four obliged him for seven months of the year to ship at least one hundred thousand barrels of refined oil a month to the seaboard as a matter of fact he never shipped less than one hundred and eight thousand barrels and in one month of the period it rose to one hundred and eighty thousand now in eighteen seventy three he made at the very lowest figure three cents a gallon on his oil estimating his shipments simply at seven hundred thousand barrels a year and they were much more his profits for that year were one million and fifty thousand dollars and this accounts for no profits on about thirty-five per cent of the standard output which was sold locally or shipped westward little wonder that the cleveland refiners who had been snuffed out the year before and who saw their plants run at such advantage grew bitter or that gossip said the daily mail of the president of the standard oil company was enlivened by so many threats of revenge that he took extraordinary precautions about appearing unguarded in public it is worth noticing that these great profits were not being used for private purposes in eighteen seventy two the standard oil paid a dividend of thirty seven per cent but in eighteen seventy three they cut it to fifteen per cent the profits were going almost solidly into the extension and solidification of the business mr rockefeller was building great barrel factories thus cutting down to the minimum one of a refiner's heaviest expenses he was buying tank cars that might be independent of the vagaries of the railroads in allowing cars he was gaining control of terminal facilities in new york he was putting his plants into the most perfect condition introducing every improved process which would cheapen his manufacturing by the smallest fraction of a cent he was diligently hunting methods to get a larger percentage of profit from crude oil. There was perhaps ten percent of waste at that period in crude oil. It hurt him to see it unused, and no man had a heartier welcome from the president of the Standard Oil Company than he who would show him how to utilize any portion of his residuum. In short, Mr. Rockefeller was strengthening his line at every point, and to no part of it was he giving closer attention than to transportation. End of chapter four. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com.